My name is Hayden Sparks. I'm a senior reporter here at The Texan. Today, I interviewed United States Representative Michael Cloud, who represents the 27th Congressional District here in Texas. We talked about border security, illegal immigration, the ATF's registry of gun owners, and other issues that matter to Texans. I hope you enjoyed this interview, and remember to go to thetexan.news and subscribe today for more coverage on issues that matter to everyday Texans. Thanks. Congressman, it is a privilege to be here with you in Austin. Thank you so much for joining us. Sure thing. Good to be with you. I want to jump right into it. You represent the 27th Congressional District, which is a unique district that spans into South Texas and comes up here to Austin. So border mm-hmm. security has been a an issue that has been important to voters across the state. And we've had oh, yeah. 2.2 million encountered illegal aliens on the southwest border. Yeah, right. Exactly. And that doesn't count people who <laughs> have got away. Right, right. Exactly. All the, the people who were not detected. <clears throat> what do you think and what do you contend are the main reasons the Biden administration is either unwilling or unable to decrease detected illegal crossings? Well, first, we need to be clear. It's not that they're unable to. Uh, unlike the previous administration, the Biden administration inherited a solution and has turned it into a catastrophe. And so it, the willingness isn't the issue, or the, I should say the ability isn't the issue, it's the willingness. And, uh, you know, we've met with Mayorkas several times. He's lied to us about what's going on at the border, things that everybody knows, things that we have video of, he says is not happening. Um, and so it's, it's simply there's not a willingness to secure the border in spite of everything going on. And, and it's really tragic uh, because... It, the, the implications are, are horrific. You know, the migrants being persecuted along the journey. Uh, we can look at 70 to 80,000 fentanyl deaths because of the connections to the cartels. Uh, you know, it, it's just horrific what this administration is allowing to happen for whatever their political means are, whatever their political objectives are. Now, Governor Abbott here in Austin, he was at an event in Midland where he declared organizations that traffic fentanyl in Texas to be terrorist organizations. Yes, yeah. And and you've supported legislation that would designate cartels as terrorist organizations. Do you think that's the solution? It's part of the solution. Um, you know, obviously we need infrastructure on the border. Uh, one thing that people don't talk about a lot when we look at the success of the Trump administration, we'll talk about safe third country, which was huge. Uh, we'll look at other other things that were put in place. But one of the biggest things was they just followed the law. Yeah, you know, the laws that were already on the books and this, <clears throat> the Biden administration continues to ignore the law. And uh, so designating these cartels as terrorist organizations, <clears throat> excuse me, certainly would be justified uh, and would help to push back on the evil that's happening in these countries. Because people, you know, supposedly the borders are uh, Kamala Harris went down to the border to look for the root causes and they're trying to, you know, think about these other countries. The best thing that we can do to these other countries, uh, for these other countries, is to help uproot this evil that's in their country. You know, I, I know companies who would love to invest. Mexico needs energy. And, and there's companies that would invest billions of dollars, but they're not going to when the cartels have that kind of influence. The cartels are profiting off of everything that comes across the border. So that's drugs. That's the human trafficking situation. But it's also the legal stuff coming across the border. For example, a lot of, you know, Cows that make it to feed yards in Texas or are born in Mexico, come to a feed yard in Texas, get fattened up and make it to market. 
uh, even even the ranchers in Mexico are having to pay to get their calves across the border. You know, the avocado trade, <laughs> the, the cartel's getting uh, a, a kickback from that. And so their their influence in these countries that are trying to develop is outsized. And so it's hard for them to develop a stable economy when the cartel is the primary strong arm influence in these regions. So what would you say to Democrats and skeptics who contend that all of this is timed and Republicans are overblowing the extent of the security risks uh, and, yeah. and in terms of President Trump declaring it an emergency only after losing the majority in Congress or uh, Governor Abbott launching all of these border security measures the year of the Republican primary. How would you respond to those criticisms? Well, even in, in even in my four, few short years there, you've seen an awareness of what's happening at the border. When I first showed up at a, in Congress, a lot of members didn't really know and, and kind of had the same attitude. Is it real? What's going on? And and I, along with other members, have taken a number of trips to the border, bringing other members with us. I think people understand now that it's real. Uh, we have plenty of documented footage. We know what's going on. And it's definitely real. I would say the hardest part about communicating what's at the border is it sounds like you're over-exaggerating when you're just barely scratching the surface. Uh, and when it comes to telling these stories about the rape trees on properties, dead bodies found on properties, you know, mm -hmm. I visited facilities where, you know, 30 to 50 percent of the young women have admitted to being sexually assaulted on the journey. Uh, and who knows how many don't want to talk about it. You know, uh, it, it's again, it's it's horrific. Anytime you have policies that a criminal element like that is looking forward to and begin to market your policies to the world. And you got to think like this, this is not the right way. Mm -hmm. and, and this administration continues to aid and abet these cartels uh, in having this outside. And it's something like $200 million that they're making a month or something like that. It's, it's just off the human trafficking. It's, it's ridiculous. It's just unconscionable and, and completely immoral that we would allow this to happen. There was recently a conviction here in Texas of an individual who smuggled someone from Guatemala into Texas, and she ultimately died near Odessa, Texas. And they uncovered a, a human smuggling operation where people were you were mentioning being charged ten to twelve thousand mm -hmm. dollars to be smuggled into Texas, but yeah. these types of things have always gone on. Unfortunately, what can Republicans promise in the coming Congress? Because there's been a lot of criticism of the Biden administration. If Republicans retake Congress, what types of policies would they implement to dramatically reduce this type of activity? Well, I, I can speak for myself and what we'll be pushing, and I know a number of other Republicans who agree on the issues will be, you know, whether we can get the whole conference to support it and whether we can get it through the Senate and then onto the White House desk is a different issue. But, you know, first of all, we've got to impeach Mayorkas. Uh, I mean, the, this guy is not acting in good faith. He lies to the American people. He lies about what's going on on the border. I visited the facilities and they'll literally lie about what's happening in front of our eyes. You know, for example, there was once we're at a Donna facility and there's a bus loaded up with people and we're like, hey, what's going on here? They're like, oh, that's a staff change. And it's like, <laughs> you realize the bus has windows, right? <laughs> you know, and it's just that kind of, you know, and, and, and you can't negotiate in good faith with somebody like that. It's not the fact that, you know, oh, we have a policy difference on these sorts of issues. It's that they're literally... uh allowing a criminal element and then empowering them. And, you know, there's been this, you know, pushback from 
the liberal media and some of the on the left about Abbott sending buses and DeSantis sending, you know, migrants to different calling it human trafficking you know, itself. Yes. But the federal government's been doing that on the taxpayer's dime for the last several years, you know, and and it's just the, the duplicity is, would be comical if it wasn't so tragic. And the fact that we're dealing with so many lives just absolutely ruined. Um, and, you know, so so we've got to start with the leadership. We need new leadership. Uh, we can we can the thing we have to stop doing uh, as Republicans is stop sending this administration money to do bad things. Uh, we had a funding bill back earlier in the year and uh, they were talking about how this bill is going to be great. It's going to plus up DHS. You know, that means more money for border security and everything like that. But we got to be savvy enough to know that, OK, we send the border bill over there or we send a bill over there that pluses up DHS. And we're thinking that's more money for border security. We certainly need more money for border security. We need the infrastructure. We need uh, the technology. We need, you know, raises for border patrol. We need more border patrol agents and all those different kind of things. But the administration gets the money and this is, oh, it's more money to help with our human trafficking mm. operation. Uh, and, and so they repurpose that in a sense for, I mean, literally, we're paying more to not build a wall that we've already, Congress has already told them to build the wall for. <laughs> and and so that's the kind of people we're dealing with. And we have to be realize that when we're writing bills and passing legislation and make sure that we're, we're, we're going to stop sending them money to do bad things until they start doing what they're supposed to be doing. I want to turn a little bit to the Second Amendment. because. Amid all of this crime and increase in illegal immigration, I think self-defense is probably at the top of mind for many people. Mm -hmm. And you've been an outspoken critic of a program at the ATF that collects data on gun owners by requiring businesses that have gone out of business to collect now up to a billion nearly uh, records on firearm owners. Uh, What would you say, how would you characterize the threat to the Second Amendment that is in that program. Well, it, it's it's something we should all be wary of because what's supposed to happen is okay. There's records of gun purchases. If a if an FFL goes out of business, uh, records up to twenty years would go to the ATF for safekeeping in case there's a crime. They can help trace it. First of all, uh, very rarely is there been a law enforcement benefit from that. It, it, the, the cases are few and far between when you look at the data. Uh, but this kind of started out when we found out that the in 2021, uh, the ATF had amassed in one year close to 55 million gun records. And we thought that was kind of like a outsized number. That that seemed kind of like a lot. Um, and so we began to look into it and found out that indeed they had col- over time collected almost a billion gun records and put them into a digital da- searchable database. Mm-hmm. Now, it's already against the law to create a federal gun registry. But when does a searchable database of gun records not become a gun registry? You know, and and it's so from the left, it's like, oh, we'll just change the definition. That is, you know, it's not a recession, even though it, you know, every other time this has happened, it has been or, you know, everything that we see going on in, in uh, a lot of the politics when it comes to this sort of thing. But um, the Inflation Reduction Act that doesn't reduce inflation and, and the like. But when it came to this uh you know, they have a searchable database and and literally what we've seen is now the ATF showing up and knocking on doors saying, hey, we have we have a, a couple serial numbers here of you purchasing some firearms. Can we see these? We're just doing a spot check in your house, you know, on your front door. This is not what the Second Amendment was uh, about. This is everything contrary to that. Uh, and the ATF has has continued to, again, not act in good faith when it comes to the American people and, and upholding their their rights 
that are enshrined in the in the Constitution under the Second Amendment. And you've introduced a bill to more or less prohibit the ATF from keeping these types of records, but obviously uh, your party's not in power, and <laughs> that bill hasn't gone anywhere in the House Judiciary Committee where it was referred. Yeah. But do you think in the coming Congress, if Republicans are in charge, what are, are you optimistic that that bill could make some progress? Uh, I, I am optimistic that uh, we will make some progress on that. Uh, should the House flip, Jim Jordan uh, will be chair of the Judiciary Committee, and he he's not afraid to to take on a, a, a fight, I guess, <laughs> as, as we know. And so... So you've had conversations uh, with your colleagues about this? Uh, yes, yeah, okay. very much. There's a lot of support uh, among... Uh, among uh, Republicans up there to understand that what the ATF is doing is is not right. Uh, and it, it's part of a, sadly, a theme that we've seen over the last couple of years where the bureaucracy has really outgrown uh, itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and that's true under Republican and Democratic administrations uh, where the bureaucracy, in a sense, knows it's like, in a sense, they look at an elected official and they're like, you're temporary, we're permanent. Uh, so... <laughs> You know, we'll kind of do what we want. We'll drag our feet on policies we don't like. Uh, we'll we'll overstep our authorities on, to enforce policies we we do like, uh, and, and really need to be held in check. And you know, I'm on the oversight committee, and so that's one of the big things we're looking at. And well, we've started the work already, but you know, especially should the House flip, really looking at being able to dig in and and, and address a lot of these issues because what we see happening in the ATF is 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 really bad. Uh, because of what it means for the American people and their Second Amendment rights, but it's it's part of a a culture really that that's mm-hmm. in our bureaucracy that needs to be addressed. So I do want to ask though, what do you believe the end game is with programs like this, or is it just that there are many people who are concerned, especially with events like the ghastly shooting in Uvalde, mm-hmm. that the government needs to be doing more to acknowledge the role of firearms in different types of violence, especially mass murder. Right. What what would you say? Are there some reasonable policies the Democrats are proposing, like raising the age to purchase a, a semiotic weapon to to twenty one, or or just keeping a, a list of people who have these types of weapons? What what is so unreasonable about that, from your perspective? Our our founders understood the importance of the Second Amendment in in protecting, preserving the rest of our rights. Uh, it, it's really when it comes down to it, it's not about y- your right to go shoot clay <laughs> traps on, on the weekend or go hunting or those kind of things. Uh, it's really about securing our homes, securing our rights, protecting our, our liberties, uh, those sorts of things. And a lot of the proposals we see coming out of the left or even from reasonable people who just haven't done the research, when you look at the data, it, it's really counterintuitive in, in that sense. And, you know, just at a, a first level of why you look at the cities that have the highest gun restrictions are the ones with the highest murders, mm-hmm. you know, and, and there was, a, as far as we could find only one study that really one peer reviewed study that studied the effects of raising an age to 21. And believe it or not, it was either an, in, in a negligent difference, or if anything, it was a 6% increase in, in crimes with a gun during that time. And so a, a lot of these things, you know, the data is just not there to support them. Uh, it doesn't mean the heart's in the wrong place. But the thing that if you're going to take an honest look at it, and there's not one single contributing factor, and, and to try to approach the, the topic that way would, would be the wrong way to do it. But if there was, the closest thing you can find to it is broken homes. 
and, and that's something that we as a society have got to realize is that the family's important and we have put in policy after policy after policy to attack the family mm-hmm. and and those things that we held dear that have united us the rule of law you know all these sorts of things uh begin uh even in the family uh, and those values that have held us together as society uh and, and so we've got to take a serious look at that as well well and and there were certainly uh, red flags uh, there are plenty of red flags with the Uvalde shooter, and and a broken home was one of them. Um, I want to turn a little bit to the the strategy of the Republican Party and the the electoral gains that the GOP has made in South Texas. Are you confident that that is a trend, and Republicans are going to uh, continue to make gains in South Texas, or is this just, uh, for instance, in the special election with Myra Flores, or is that just a an isolated case of the Republican Party focusing on one election, or do you think uh, voters in South Texas are becoming more open to conservative policies? What what the extreme push from the left has done as has really unveiled uh, their I, I guess their true intent on a lot of different issues, and because of that, people who've been you know really held conservative values are beginning to realize, but have been told, oh, we're supposed to vote Democrat because that's what Abuelito did. <laughs> or, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it, you know, they're beginning to see like, wait a second, this isn't really what I want for my family or for my community. Uh, law and order really does matter. Uh, you know, having these, these values that my family has held dear matters, you know, uh, the whole redefining society for things that have been long established is, is just kind of crazy and ludicrous, you know, uh, and, and, you know, be, those kind of things are causing these people to understand. I mean, my, my wife's a naturalized citizen and, and y- y- just when it comes to the border and immigration and those kind of things, there's an understanding that there's a right way and a wrong way to do this, you know, and, and we are one of the most diverse nations in the world. We're going to, with every generation, keep working toward that more perfect union. But a lot of the craziness coming out of the left is just is is vitriolic. It's divisive. It's uh, and the American people are realizing, like, that's not really us in spite of them trying to convince us that's us. And uh, I'm not going to be aligned with that anymore. Do you think it's primarily issues like inflation or illegal immigration that are pushing voters in South Texas to Republicans, or uh, could it be other factors that are contributing to it? You know, I, I think it's a little bit all of that, but you know, all that comes down to a worldview. So, you know, a lot of times we try to decide. You know, the pollsters love to, you know, dissect these, but it really comes down to to a worldview. You know, one that values the the dignity and rights that we understand that God placed within humans, and then we put a government there to protect those, or one that believes that you know. No, government is really the end all be all. And, you know, we should look to government to solve all our problems, you know, and 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 it's really liberty versus control, you know, and a lot of these different issues. And, you know, people are understanding as they see these values challenged. And here's the thing. You know, I've talked to the, the people who, who are most adamant about these sort of things. It's so interesting to talk to are the people who who have immigrated here. Uh, and who've come with their families and have worked hard. You know, I know a restaurant owner in my district, and to hear him talk about uh, American voters who 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 don't seem to get what's happening in the country right now. Uh, you know, he's 
you know, he will use a, col- a few colorful metaphors, as they say, to, <laughs> <laughs> to like, what's wrong with you people? It's like, I, I worked hard to come here to bring my family to make a living, and you're voting for the things that I fled, you know, under communism uh, and, and those sorts of things. So, you know, this is just how important it is that we continue to to pass on to the next generation uh, really the amazing story that America is. Not a perfect story, and we shouldn't have to gloss over that. But still, you know, with every generation being on the front end of moving human flourishing forward, uh, and, and that's the story of what it is to to be America. You know, that's shining city on a hill that that's done wonderful the for the people who are here, but also has has provided a world that's more peaceful, more secure, more prosperous for people around the world. Well, and on the subject of pushing human flourishing forward, what would you identify as the greatest threat? to our constitutional republic today. Mm. Yeah, wow. That's <laughs> there's a lot of uh, a lot of you know complacency would certainly be one if you're looking at internal threats. You know, it's just people who our form of government requires our participation. You know, you can go back to Benjamin Franklin at the Constitutional Convention being asked, "Do we have a republic or do we have a monarchy?" He said, "We have a republic if you can keep it." Mm-hmm. You know, we have to be diligent about it and not take these liberties for granted. And sometimes that's hard for people who've known nothing but what it means to be uh, uh, live under, uh, under, under a relatively peaceful place here in the United States or under the, the prosperity that our nation has compared to, to, to other nations, uh, and to take the why behind that what for granted when we need to not do that. Uh, and, and, you know, if you look at the trend of the, what they call the American century, what it's meant from the innovation that we brought in medicine and all these other factors, what it's meant for, for the world and coming out of poverty and what it's meant for life expectancy. And even in some of, you know, military missteps and everything like that, still in spite of that, less people have died in wars, uh, you, you know, during this period. And, and so, uh, there's a lot to, to be said there. Uh, and so we can't be complacent when we look internally, but obviously there's external threats as well. China is, is huge and, you know, they are basically an all out warfare and everything but collateral, uh, against our nation. And we have to be wary of that sort of thing, you know, in the many different facets from stealing seed technology to buying farmland, to stealing trade secrets, to, you know, currency manipulation to, you know, you can just go on and on and on. And that doesn't even touch the, the coronavirus and, you know, everything we've seen over the last couple of years. Uh, and, and and we've got to take that very seriously uh, from a federal perspective uh, as well. I think there's probably, there are probably fewer things that make our adversaries like China happier than seeing some of the division in our country and how we have a tendency oh, yeah. to attack one another. Would you say that um, there are things that that both sides can do, and and you're a Republican, so I'll ask you about Republicans. But uh, would you say that uh, there are there are times when uh, perhaps the the way that Republicans uh, or or politicians on both sides characterize issues as as an existential crisis or <laughs> or an apocalyptic you know, identity crisis? Uh, do you think that could be? Tone down to more of a, a policy discussion. What do you think it's going to take for people to be able to have uh, policy differences uh, without and still unite around shared values? 
the uh, yeah yes and no and here's here's the thing a lot of the policy discussion like you know if we think a generation ago the difference between the right and left was more we had the same values for our communities we had the same values for our nation we understood that the united states was a force for good in the world generally speaking uh and and so the political discussion was more in what's the role of government in getting to that shared space uh you know, and, and what's the role of the federal government or the state government? And what's the role of different institutions? And and so that was the political debate. But when the political debate is, uh, is the U.S. is good or bad, or these things are good or bad, or, you know, in, in the case of the border, for example, are, are we going to aid and abet cartels? Or are we going to secure the border? Uh, you know, on some of these issues, there's, there's not a lot of wiggle room when it comes to these sorts of, of liberty-defining issues. Uh, and so you have to stand strong on the, you know, we understand that these these rights are not grants granted from government. They're they're uh, placed within us uh, from God, and then we we put a government in place to protect them. And and so you have to stand strong on those some of those things. Now, when when we can, and you know, I, I'm a Texan. There's a lot of times, you know, when it comes, I'm a Texan on the ag committee, and so. There's a lot of ag issues or port issues where we're able to reach across the aisle for stuff that matters to Texas and and work on those kind of nuanced policy things. Uh, but when it comes to some of these other things, it, if if you're calling good evil and evil good, you you can't negotiate on that, <laughs> you know. And and so that's what what uh, makes the the time and season we're in as a nation. And, and I would say, too, you know, if you study superpowers throughout history, they rise and fall for reasons. And sometimes when we're born, like I said, in the United States, you, all you can imagine is the United States being preeminent. Uh, but the truth is, is that nations do rise and fall for reasons. And and we are at a point where, you know, we've overextended military, where we've uh, not been you know, we're the world's reserve currency, but we're not acting like the world's reserve currency and, and those sorts of things. And so uh, the average cycle throughout history of a superpower is 240 to 250 years. Mm. And we're right in the middle of that. Right. Uh, and I believe in America. I have hope for our future, but we have to realize where we're at uh, in order to make the changes needed to to secure that for uh, for future generations. That's uh, jarring to hear because we've seen over the past couple of years things that that we haven't seen in in many generations in our country. And mm. after after Trump's win in 2016, we had years of of protesting that culminated in the 2020 riots. And then after uh, after the January 6 event, uh, there were uh, there was a resolution introduced and and you voted against it and and gave a statement that I thought highlighted uh, an important aspect of this debate. And you stated uh, words to the effect that the government or the capital should not be considered a temple and it should yeah. not be set up as this, as this religious mm -hmm. icon. Um, what do you think it's going to take to restore the proper role of government in, in our lives as a, as a tool right. rather than this idol? And, and, you know, what's notable is I had a conversation with some other people on the floor as we were about to vote on that. And I said, look, the language in here, this, it calls this capital the temple of democracy, mm -hmm. you know, and and I had, you know, a few members like, oh, my gosh, that's sacrilegious. <laughs> uh, but then, you know, it was a tough vote. And anyway, so uh, I was one of the few <laughs> to vote the way I did. 
Uh, but it was. It was. It was intriguing. Almost spiritualizing uh, a government exactly. building. But that's that's the whole idea from the left and the mm-hmm. movement behind it is to replace God with government, uh, and to where the government becomes the end all. Now, I'm not anti-government. Obviously, I'm serving in government because I think you can make it a difference. I think there's a role and a proper function for mm-hmm. it. But when we begin to ask things of government that we're supposed to be doing in ourselves, for example. Uh, And I'll just give you an example. A lot of times you'll hear that the number one role of government is to keep people safe. That is an important role of government, but the number one role of government is to keep people free. Uh, And if you get that backwards, that's what allows a lot of the missteps we've seen during the COVID pandemic with the lockdowns and all these sorts of things going on where power has been abused because you get those two things backwards. So we have to keep people free first. That's our first essential job is to protect those liberties, and then we can keep people safe. But uh, uh, that, from a worldview perspective, that comes back to understanding the proper role of government and understanding that government is not a god, and we should not look to it as such. Well said. Well, Congressman, thank you so much. We're going to leave it there, but I appreciate you coming to Austin, and um, our listeners, I'm sure, our watchers, I appreciate you as well. Thank you so much. Thank you. God bless you